Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Sebastian Ruder. Sebastian is a third-year PhD student in natural language processing and deep learning at the Insight Research Center for Data Analytics and a research scientist at Dublin-based Texas Analytics startup, Alien. Am I pronouncing this correctly? Yeah, yeah, that was actually correct. Okay, he's interested in transfer and multitask learning for NLP and democratizing machine learning and AI. Today, he will be talking to us about his paper, a survey of cross-lingual word embeddings, embedding models. Uh, it's posted in the archive a few months ago. Welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. Cool, yeah, I'm happy to be here, guys. And thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for, for being on the show. Uh, so what do you mean by cross-lingual word embeddings and why do you think they're important? So cross-lingual word embeddings, so I assume most of the listeners of, of this podcast will be familiar with uh, word embeddings, which is basically a way to represent um, words um, with dense representations in a low-dimensional space, uh, which can be used as input for uh, yeah, neural network models, or also can be used just by themselves to reveal relationships or similarities across different words. And usually the way people use word embeddings is um, yeah, generally by by either learning them with a um, unsupervised tool like Word2Vec before, or just by learning them as part of the model while they're training the model for the particular task. And yeah, and usually, like generally, these tasks would be uh, in, in English or whatever language the people are using for. And so cross-lingual word embeddings are now a way to, um, instead of having just one space for one language, to um, put the, these representations that we learned from different languages into the same space. And basically, these different models we talked about in this survey allow us to, given monolingual word embeddings in different languages, protect them into a joint space. And then we can do all kinds of things, uh, different things with these, with this joint space. Either we can use the, uh, the relationships between the words or use them again for training our models. So, uh, could you elaborate on why we, people care about multilingual or cross-lingual embeddings? It's easy to forget like the importance of doing this if you're living in an English-speaking country, I guess, or most, most of the resources are available in English. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and it's also uh, like um, most of the most of the research, unfortunately, or most of our data sets are in English, yeah, but English is not the only language or yeah, by far not the most, um, by far not all of the people we uh, want to be able to use our technology speak English or all of the data is in English. So we really want to have the means to um, apply our models to um, to other languages. Yeah? And in most of these cases, really the difficulty is that for all of the languages we apply want to apply our models to, we don't have enough um, label data generally in all those cases, or generally it is too expensive to really annotate enough data um, to get good models in all the languages we would like. And so cross-lingual embeddings, basically the kind of the main or my my personally my main interest in those is that they provide us a very um, intuitive or a very um, appealing way to scale models to different languages by essentially allowing us to create this joint space and then uh, we only require one um, model that is trained on this joint space and that can be then applied to all of the other languages we care about. So if you're using cross-lingual word embeddings, then you're probably also using standard neural network kinds of models, which means we, we have like an LSTM that encodes inputs 
how well does this actually work when you take into account things like different word order and different languages? Like, I, I'm just wondering, does, does this even make sense? Because the syntax is different even across languages, even, if, even assuming for a minute that you really can get a, a consistent vector space across languages, which I'm not totally ready to buy. But assuming you could do that, what about like this linear processing that you, you would think would be pretty syntax dependent? Right. Yeah. So that's obviously um, this is a fact, uh, like this is a feature that is task dependent. Also, it kind of it yeah it depends um, on which task you're using it for, and also how similar the languages are for which you're using the space. But generally, so this kind of ties in um, to the different the benchmark tasks that people um, try to uh, evaluate these different models on. So one particular task that is commonly used to evaluate these kind of models is uh, cross-lingual document classification, where you train the space and then you have labeled data in English, and you want to apply your model to test data on another language. And and that generally for just doing like topical classification, we don't really where word order or compositionality isn't that important. Um, that works quite or reasonably well. And then, yeah, and, and recently people have applied these kind of models to more sophisticated tasks. So one recent evaluation task that people from like Ivan Woolish's group in, in Cambridge has been using is um, slot filling in, in dialogue models. And also there they observe um, improvements using these um, this cross-linked embedding space as, as features. But yeah, it's still it's still that it doesn't, for more sophisticated tasks, they probably wouldn't get us like, all, all the way, but they provide still a good um, a good uh, a good baseline. Interesting. So the the tasks you mentioned are basically I can learn a representation for each class that I'm trying to fill, either like a a class that I'm trying to lump documents into or a slot I'm trying to extract things into, and then words in each language will get a feature representation that maps to this class. And so the class is the thing that's really cross-lingual and you're just learning a mapping from words in every language into this class, basically. And it's like you just, you just have a really big vocabulary in a single language almost because you're not really doing very much syntax processing. Is, am I understanding that right? Exactly, yeah. So I haven't actually, um, so I haven't personally applied these methods to for tasks, for instance, like cross-lingual sentiment classification. I haven't seen seen that. So, for, yeah, I would imagine that um, more difficult data sets, like maybe the central sentiment, sentiment tree bank, which really has a lot of these kind of very sophisticated negations. And so it might be harder to to do well on, on these kind of tasks. But I haven't done actually um, re research myself on that. So I think there are a couple... Uh like nuances here. One is that we hope that our embeddings capture both semantic and syntactic information about words. And depending on which tasks you care about, one of them may be important than the other. Uh, so even in, in a very syntactic task like dependency parsing, uh, I found that uh, word embeddings, like capturing the semantics in the word embeddings is pretty important, not just capturing the syntax. Um, and the way in which we treat most of these word embeddings lend themselves to capturing the semantics much more than capturing the syntax in the first place. So I wouldn't, yeah, maybe with, like there are some exceptions, like uh, the, uh, I think Omar Levy's modification of word to vec which uses parse speech, uh, sorry, uh, dependency parse connections instead of uh, looking at the context window to either side of the, of the word. Uh, they tend to work better on syntactic tasks. 
But in general, I think the semantic information uh, in, in these embedded spaces are what we're really hoping to get out of them. And that should transfer better across languages. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you will have, have done some research on this, right? You're, you're included in the survey that Sebastian published. <laughs> At least I used to work a lot on this. So I, I yeah, I find it. I find it pretty. I found it pretty compelling. Uh, and for example, in cross-lingual dependency parsing, to add these embeddings, and even though we're adding this on top of our speeches, so you already have a good idea what syntactic function this word is is trying to do. And uh, in many of these experiments, I was using gold POS tags also, so that was not a uh, problem. Of course, uh, the POS tags are not perfect, so they don't give, give you all the nuances of the syntax. I think the other point is that even if we Think that word embeddings carry some syntactic information. There are some uh, language pairs with similar enough syntax that you would hope that this syntax would transfer. It would be hard to make this argument in a global sense for for all languages. Yeah, I guess I was thinking, it, particularly my a lot of my thinking these days is colored by the ELMO, these contextualized word representations and language model embeddings. And you'd probably have a much harder time getting that to be really cross-lingual. But this is getting kind of far afield, so. No, but that's actually a great point. I never thought this of this, but I feel like having a, lang a language model that spans multiple languages, which kind of that would be closer to what Elmo is doing. Uh, I think what would be would be very interesting. I haven't seen anyone who's trying to have one model that uh, incorporates multiple languages at the same time uh, as a language model. Yeah, I think I've seen like Julia Svetkov, I think, had a paper on like polyglot language models, but I think that was more on the uh, phonological level rather than the word level. Yeah. But uh, I think for like downstream tasks, like as you mentioned, I think it's always useful because we have, um, I think, like the research is more progressed for like projecting part of speech tags or these kind of very syntactic annotations across languages, or at least we have more data with the universal dependencies for that. So maybe, um, yeah, we can always try to inject syntactic information via those resources as well. Right. So going back to the paper, uh, could you tell us about the uh, taxonomy that you define or propose for the methods uh, that you propose for, uh, for multilingual or cross-lingual embeddings? Mm -hmm. uh, right, yes. So kind of in compiling and uh, like creating this survey, we realized that, that there's been really a lot of attention and really like um, more papers than we thought, like yours, Mar, and I think you worked on it as well, Matt, um, that have kind of dealt with uh, inducing this cross-linked space and we really and um, all of these have different different kind of annotations that, that they use or different data source basically and we try to figure out a way yeah how we can what are like the, the commonalities and what what's the best way to to summarize these and um, yeah we essentially followed a bit um, previous work from Omelady, he had a paper a bit which went in, into that direction, um, essentially showing that the actual um, difference between these models in terms of performance in the end uh, doesn't come down to what um, particular objective they're, um, they're uh, optimizing or if they have different tri tricks or tweaks in the model, but actually um, the, um, the amount of data or the level of supervision they're using. And that's what we basically use as foundation. Um, as main differentiating factor for this taxonomy. So essentially, all like 
the um, existing cross-lingual um, word embeddings models that we surveyed um, have three kind of um, levels of supervision that they can use from most expensive supervision to um, least expensive supervision, basically. So some of these use word-level supervision, so basically um, dictionaries of translations um, yeah, of, uh, of words between different languages. Then uh, a class of models uses um, supervision on the sentence level, basically translations of sentences like you would have in the um, Europarliament um, proceedings, uh, which are used for machine translation for learning these um, cross-linked embeddings. And then only a few papers assume um, supervision on the document level, so where you would have translations of, of documents, basically. Could you help me understand the difference between um, the resource, resources needed for the word-based and the sentence-based? It seems to me that most work on word-based uh, models uh, are actually using sentences, parallel sentences, and automatically inducing the, uh, the alignments between the words. So it doesn't seem to me that the word-based methods are more expensive or that they, they don't require more resources, per se. I would I would personally think that having actually the um, the sentence translations is more maybe the order in which I uh, stated those wasn't entirely correct. I think the sentence translation actually having a lot of translations of sentences is kind of the more more expensive supervision that you get because you can have um, yeah there are publicly available dictionaries which have um, translations of words um, like a dictionary for instance for a lot of languages. So kind of this. Just like word level supervision is quite um, quite easy to to get at least, right? And, and so, assuming that you have sentence uh, alignments, uh, parallel data, do you have any idea if it's possible to compare? Like, would it be better to use word based methods using automated word alignments or the sentence based methods? Yeah. So, so I mean, some of these, uh, yeah. So I. So some of these word-based methods use um, alignments or use uh, the um, translation dictionaries, basically, that were derived automatically from sentence-level data. Yeah. But then there are also other resources, like other techniques, who just use um, existing existing dictionaries as well. I think it really comes down to what level, how, if, what kind of data you have available, particularly if you approach uh, low resource languages. So generally because yeah, in those cases, you often would not have sentence level uh, supervision available um, in most often just using existing um, bilingual dictionaries to induce these embeddings might be cheaper. Yeah, and, and then, so these, so what I um, talked about right now were mostly parallel resources. And then another dimension we looked at in this taxonomy was the, the degree of parallelism or the degree of um, comparability between, um, between the translations. So most of the work looked at um, exact translations between the languages, basically, um, while for each level of supervision, there are also a few papers that just look at um, comparable um, supervision or comparable translations. And comparable in this sense uh, means that on the sentence level, for instance, on the document level, um, there would not be an exact translation, so you wouldn't um, need to have exact um, translate documents, but uh, documents would ra rather have to be uh, topically aligned or maybe have similar topics or similar labels in order to be used for these approaches. So I think you published this survey before the recent work on monolingual machine translation and monolingual, uh, I guess there has been cross-lingual alignments without parallel data at all. 
even predating the more recent um, monolingual machine translation work. Mm -hmm. How does this kind of idea fit into this survey, this taxonomy that you've created? That's actually one of the um, directions really I'm most excited about because the um, yeah because uh, like the the main direction or one of the most interesting directions these kind of um, works or research groups have taken this work um, work over the last um, over recent years is using less and less revision and um, smaller and smaller dictionaries for inducing uh, these. So I think last year there's been um, a method as well um, or the year before that even from Mikel in Basque country, where they, were, they showed good performance for as few as uh, 100 seed words in this bilingual dictionary. And so now kind of the, the logical next step is actually being able to do it without any um, uh, any seed words at all. And uh, yeah, I think that this is a very cool, um, a very interesting direction and really yeah, opens up a lot of possibilities for trying to scale really these these kind of spaces or these word embeddings to where they will be most useful, which is really for applying LP methods to very low resource languages. So you mentioned that most of these methods fit within the same category, uh, like word-based methods using exact translation, are using a similar objective. Could you give us just like a high-level intuition of what this objective looks like? And what are the different variants that we see across the different methods? Yeah, in generally, um, general, what we basically try to show um, in this survey is essentially that all of these methods try to um, are basically optimize and yeah, optimize an objective essentially, which is a combination. Um, so essentially, a, a sum of um, the different um, monolingual um, objectives that have been used to create these. The monolingual embeddings that were, um, yeah, they were initially learned and that should be projected into the joint space, as well as some sort of um, restriction on on these. So some uh, some regularization term um, that either tries to, yeah, that induces some um, some constraint on these embeddings, basically. And um, yeah, and this regularization term is usually what is um, what kind of is the main difference between the, these different approaches. And it's kind of one of the things that they have been optimized in recent years by, um, for instance, adding an orthogonality constraint or by, as kind of what was done in this uh, Mikolov's method, bringing translations close together. This would be, for instance, the, the most basic or the kind of one of the original word embedding based um, regularization terms. So the regularization term can be thought of as a very high level way of distinguishing them. Uh, but like you said, there are many different strategies for doing this regularization. It seems like uh, this is not at just like a little technicality that uh, you, you would like, uh, that doesn't matter. But it, my, my understanding from, from your survey is that it doesn't actually matter that much. Did I interpret this correctly? Or uh, like, do you have any uh, results that show like other, other people or your own that show that uh, this, like the way in which you define this regularization term doesn't matter that much? It's mainly in like recent work that we're citing or that we're kind of building on and referring to. For instance, Oma Levy's recent work and another survey paper from CMU where they basically compare different um, approaches as well and come to a similar finding in that yeah, the, main, the main difference between these approaches is kind of the level of supervision that you use. Uh, so another point you mentioned in that paper is about uh, bilingual and multilingual. How is there like a recipe for converting? So my understanding is that most of the methods were proposed in a bilingual context. 
And I'm wondering if there is like a recipe for converting any method from bilingual to multilingual, or are there certain uh, methods that are easier to extend to multilingual than others? That's a really good point. So mo most of these settings, or the, mo the most common setting in the literature, is really that um, separate models, um, separate spaces are induced for between different languages, and most commonly that is between English and another language. And then this induced space is evaluated. Uh, while in practice, we would really like yeah, ideally to have a, a joint space between a lot of languages um, and not pairwise spaces um, between each pair. And so the most straightforward way to apply these methods to the multilingual setting is really to use English um, as a pivot language, basically, um, or um, at least that's the way it's known in the, in the literature. So essentially to project, to have a English, the English language as kind of the main um, the main cross-lingual embedding space, and then project all the other languages into the same space as English. And by that, and if we yeah, if we keep the English language space fixed, we will then be basically be able to induce um, for the other languages not only the, their relation to English, but also for the languages among themselves. So is that always feasible? Uh, so you mentioned some methods, for example, that uh, add that represent that regularization term as an orthogonality constraint, would it be possible, for example, to use that one uh, without modifying the embedding space in English? See, it seems like uh, requiring that the English embeddings remain uh, in the same space is, is not always going to be uh, feasible for, for some of these methods. Depends a bit on the method. So, a like one of the most common class of methods um, uses basically learns a, a transformation matrix. So, some matrix with which we can multiply one set of embeddings to project that into the other space, basically. So that essentially keeps one of the embedding spaces fixed and just tries to project the other one um, into that space. So, for this class of mapping-based approaches. As we call them, having this um, pivot um, English embedding space is kind of a way, yeah, quite quite straightforward way to do that. Some other approaches, like some of these um, approaches we talk about, create a kind of an artificial um, synthetic multilingual corpus. These also have been um, where you basically randomly uh, replace. Um, each word in language with a translation from another word. And these kinds of approaches have also in the past been, been extended to the multilingual setting. So for these, it would, it would work generally for word-level um, supervision models quite well. For once you have supervision on the sentence level, I think it's a bit more involved or more complicated to really extend these successfully to the multilingual setting. So you mentioned before using cross-lingual document classification as a way of evaluating embeddings. Uh, what are other methods or other evaluation strategies people use for cross-lingual embeddings? And uh, do you have any thoughts on which ones are better? So the evaluation landscape for um, evaluating cross-lingual embeddings, uh, cross-lingual word embeddings, is quite similar actually than what people used or how people have done uh, embeddings of monolingual word embeddings. So one kind of direction is basically to use, to intrinsically evaluate these embeddings on tasks um, that just look at the um, embeddings in isolation and try to um, assess different, how well these 
embeddings perform different properties. So one kind of like one of the most common uh, tasks for evaluating monolingual word embeddings is word similarity, where different, um, yeah, I think most people are familiar with these um, analogy data sets that have been introduced by Mikulov um, et al, as well as different word similarity data sets, which um, come, many of them come from psychology, where people um, are uh, tasked to rate the um, similarity between two words on a scale from one to from zero to ten and these kind of um with similarity data sets have been used for evaluating cross-linked embeddings as well by mainly translating the, the words that are um, composed of into the other languages um and then basically yeah yeah just computing the spearment uh, correlation in those languages as well so that's kind of one of the tasks another task basically just predicting um word alignment um, basically so just trying to see if these um if these embeddings um are do well at predicting alignment in sentence translation data used for machine translation. Or I think here kind of the most interesting intrinsic evaluation task is probably bilingual dictionary induction, which is essentially you, yeah, for the task, you require a gold dictionary of translations in, into words. And then you just try to assess how well, um, if the translations, if the close translations of um, word in the English language is also its nearest neighbor in the embedding space. And yeah, and you can um, just compute accuracy at different um, levels for, for that task. Um, and this is a task that has been like very recently uh, quite frequently used for, for evaluating these embeddings. Basically these intrinsic tasks. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, um, there are several other downstream tasks where you can evaluate them extrinsically, like um, document classification or cross-lingual dependency passing, part of speech checking, so basically any other NLP task people would care about and people would be interested in performing or adapting to different languages can or has been used for evaluating these cross-lingual word embeddings. So uh, having read a whole bunch of these papers and written this survey, how satisfied are you with intrinsic evaluations of these methods? My feeling is a bit similar as to my opinion of intrinsic evaluation for evaluating word embeddings as well. So I think, or it's probably there's been in the last two years, these uh, RevEval workshops as well, which um, I think the first one in particular looked at kind of the, the challenges or the, the deficiencies in using word similarity um, for evaluating word embeddings. So I think just, yeah, the notion of having crossling like word, word similarity be a predictor or indicative of um, performing downstream tasks is not very, um, yeah, it's not very good. So I think just um, using solely these tasks isn't really a good proxy for how well your model is actually doing on something like the maybe more semantic tasks you would care about. But I think um, tasks like, um, yeah, like baby lingual dictionary induction really is a good um is a good proxy um, for these kind of things. And in general, I'm, I think it's always useful yeah, to maybe evaluate on one intrinsic task, like bilingual dictionary induction, but then always have a, an actual downstream task to really see if you actually get performance improvements from using these embeddings. And do these methods generally have performance improvements on downstream tasks? So following up a bit to what we earlier touched on, so for it kind of really depends on what your baseline basically is or how much label data you actually have available. So in, in, mo in most of these settings, they are evaluated where you don't actually have any label target data. So in those cases, 
we really get good performance from these kind of models. And um, yeah, I'm actually not not entirely sure how many how many t uh, label target examples you would need for each of those tasks to to really match the the performance you get from the crossing embeddings. Um, but I would say, like in, mo in most of these cases, that you actually get yeah you you actually get performance improvements as well. I, I remember uh, in one of the experiments I did in, uh, in the tackle 2016 paper was with 3,000 sentences annotated for uh, dependency parsing, you'd still see improvements, um, significant improvements, because uh, you're adding cross-link on embeddings. Interesting. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know which, at what point it doesn't matter. For, definitely for English, it did not help. So uh, I guess my last question is, what directions you see for this area of research? So let's say I'm a first year uh, graduate student, and I'm I'm interested in this space, uh, but it seems like there's quite a bit of work already done on it. Uh, is there any unanswered questions there? Uh, yeah, so that's a really good um, good question. So in um, writing the survey, um, one thing we noticed was that learning embeddings with comparable corpora, so where you don't actually have this um, really strict requirement on having actual translations, but where you just have some level of similarity, yeah, we noticed that like not a lot of work is focused on that, and that, that would be a really interesting and useful uh, useful direction. Since writing the survey, I've I've ran I've done a couple of experiments in that, and I found it harder to to get to work on like only some like if corpora only somewhat or maybe only topically related. So I found that a bit unreliable in just in my personal experiments. But I'm sure there's still a lot of potential to explore different measures of of links between languages that can be just used like in a, in a distance to a vision kind of way. So besides that, yeah, basically what, what we just touched upon, I think really the, the most interesting direction is yeah, essentially unsupervised learning these embeddings unsupervised basically or with as little data as possible. And I think in that um, direction, it's really interesting. So as you said, there have been um, kind of two, well, one one method by the Facebook that used an adversarial approach to to learn these embeddings basically in a, a very unsupervised way, um, and then also last year um, from Mikkel a paper which basically uses um, like a self self learning kind of approach, um, starting from a um, very small um, seed dictionary, which also achieves good performance. And so I think really um, looking at where these kind of particular, because there's like recently there's been lots of tension for these adversarial approaches. So really looking at in what kind of circumstances these approaches actually work well is very interesting. Um, in particular, because most of these um, evaluations so far were really, were only considering data sets that are very topically related. So like the Europol proceedings or Wikipedia. So just really looking at the how robust these kind of models are, how far we can get with these kind of adversarial approaches, or if we can really, um, if we can get maybe similar performance um, by using yeah, smarter ways to use these seeds, like identical words in different languages that we can use as straightforward seeds for inducing these dictionaries as well. Interesting. Do you, do you know if they did any extrinsic evaluation or was it of uh, intrinsic? So they evaluated, I think, as far as I remember, on bilingual dictionary induction and got really good results um, for that. Like very, I mean, the results show that the approach works, but it's just not very, not clear yet under what conditions uh, it really, it works or, or for what languages as well. 
because like like you said, if there is a strong connection or a strong similarity between these languages, um, it might be easier to induce um, these kind of unsupervised embeddings than having very dissimilar languages like English and Finnish, for instance. Yeah, that's very exciting. All right, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, if, if the audience find this interesting, we should go and look at the survey. Thank you again. Cool. Again, thanks for inviting me.